Welcome to the Florida Roundup, and thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, when it comes to health care in Florida, abortion was at the forefront of the conversation this year. The landmark Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade, was overturned, giving states the ability to regulate or ban abortion. Trigger laws in some states went into effect immediately, such as Arkansas, Missouri, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. That's right. Now, here in Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis signed a bill that bans most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That bill was blocked after a state court judge ruled the law violated the Florida Constitution. The state then filed an appeal of the judge's ruling, which automatically suspended the judge's decision under Florida law. Abortion rights groups then promptly sued the state. So where does it stand now? Well, plaintiffs are waiting for the Florida Supreme Court to accept or deny the legal challenge. Alongside abortion, Florida Surgeon General Joseph Ladapo returns for a second term alongside the governor. A critical skeptic of COVID vaccines and tight restrictions, Ladapo worked with Governor DeSantis to significantly change the state's COVID guidance. And so what role will Ladapo play in the state next year? Also on our radar in 2023, Florida might be dealing with a Medicaid crisis. How will they weather that over in Tallahassee? The Florida this year also banned gender-affirming care for minors. How is that affecting those children in Florida next year? Lots of health news to discuss. We're pleased to welcome Carrie Sheridan, a health and education reporter with WUSF, and Daniel Chang, Florida health correspondent for the Kaiser Health News. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks for having me. And no phone calls to thank you both. No phone calls today on the show, folks, but lots of conversation. Let's begin with you, Carrie Sheridan. You know, with a Republican supermajority in both the Florida House and Senate, there is a chance we will see state lawmakers attempt to ban abortions in Florida after six weeks of pregnancy or altogether next year. If that should become law, what ramifications will that have for abortion care? for women across this state? Well, that's that's a great question, Melissa. You know, just to give a sense of the landscape in Florida at present, um, the Ellen Guttmacher Institute says that 24% of women in Florida already live in counties with no abortion clinic. So they've classified the state of Florida as a place where there's severely restricted access to abortion. Um, but, Florida has one of the highest rates of abortion among all the 50 states. In fact, Florida has the third highest abortion rate right after New York and Illinois. So what that means is um, Florida has 19 abortions per thousand women of reproductive age, and that's about twice the national average of about 11. So in short, that means that Florida really has quite a robust abortion industry here, not to call it an industry, but it's quite an an active um, right that women are availing themselves of here in Florida. Right. I mean, uh, Florida's a receiving state, too, isn't it, for women across the southeast seeking the procedure? Uh, how much is that? How much is that driving uh, the actions of lawmakers in Florida to enact further restrictions? Yeah, it's Florida. The the polls show that Florida is the only state in the southeastern U.S. where a majority of people say that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. Um, The the number of people percentage wise who answered that question accordingly is 56 percent of Floridians say that abortion should be legal in most or all cases. And that's just behind California, where 58 percent of people think that. So despite the fact that we do have this Republican supermajority, um, many Republicans have been hesitant to say how far they intend to go with um, any proposed restrictions, further restrictions on abortion. Um, I know that the Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo said recently in an interview with the Tampa Bay Times and the Miami Herald that she'd like to see the 15-week abortion ban approved last year by lawmakers She'd like to see that reduced to 12 weeks, and she would like to see an addition of an exclusion for rape and incest, which is currently not allowed. Um, But as you mentioned earlier, there are also signals that even a much, much more restrictive abortion ban could be 
brought forward, it's it's just hard to tell at this point what lawmakers intend to do. Now, also in the healthcare space, there's a Medicaid crisis on the horizon. Florida's poorest kids could lose health insurance next year when the federal government is expected to end the expanded Medicaid coverage that was put in place during the height of the COVID pandemic. Dozens of nonprofit groups and health organizations have sent a signed letter to Governor DeSantis asking the state to release its plans for managing this crisis. So what impact would the loss of this coverage have on Floridians, especially Florida's poorest children, if that happens next year? Mm -hmm. Yeah, what this public health emergency has really done is allowed... um, <clears throat> I'm just going to pause for a minute because I have a plane going overhead and I can hear it. So if you don't mind, I'm just going to pause. No problem. We can't hear it where we are, <laughs> but oh, okay. we don't want you to be distracted. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay. What's happened with the pandemic health emergency is that Medicaid coverage has been continuous. So when that ends, um, what will happen is people who run Medicaid will have to check with people again as they normally do every year and see if people are still eligible. So the the concern is that that will really have a big effect on children, on people who have maybe limited English proficiency and people with disabilities uh, who may not be able to answer those questions in a timely manner or, you know, who may get lost in the administrative process a bit. Um, or who may not be eligible anymore, and then they would have to transfer over to a different kind of health insurance. So I believe the latest number I saw was about 1.7 million people had been added to Medicaid in Florida since this began, and about more than 500,000 of them are children. So that would be quite a lot of uninsured children for the state to have all of a sudden. Yeah, and and how would this impact people coping with say, long COVID symptoms, people with mental health issues. That's another big public health problem right now. How will those groups be affected? Well, those are some of the issues that are the most um, you know, problematic for people, people who really need help and who need coverage. Uh, the last thing that they need to be worrying about is how to file the paperwork correctly or you know, how to show that they are still eligible or applying for new coverage. Those are big demands on uh, vulnerable populations. So what advocates are asking the state to do is publish their plan. Um, all states are required to have a plan according to the Centers for Medicaid and Services, but they're not required to make it public. And Florida is one of those states that has not yet made any sort of plan public. Um, because what what a lot of people in public health would like to see is, is a smoother transition for people so that people don't fall off the rolls and then encounter really serious health issues. Hmm. Now, here's something else to keep our eyes on next year. The governor is keeping Florida Surgeon General Joseph Latipo around for a second term. Uh, Latipo has expressed controversial views about vaccinations for COVID. The governor also has announced he plans to hold COVID vaccine manufacturers accountable for the side effects of the vaccines. Uh, What might come out of all of this next year as we continue to deal with variants of the virus and uh, it's still out there as a healthcare issue? Yeah, it is. COVID cases are rising. We've heard that a lot of hospitals and medical facilities are dealing with this triple-demic of the flu and RSV and COVID. Uh, I was just talking to a nurse last week who transferred out of a COVID ward after working there throughout the pandemic, and uh, she's in orthopedics unit, and now she has six COVID patients in her unit. So um, it is it is still around. It is still hospitalizing people. It's not the situation that we had earlier in the pandemic, but it certainly is still an issue. And the governor, uh, you know, uh, Tuesday, December 13th, was broadcasting a, a roundtable with some of the scientists that he often brings on, including the Surgeon General, Joseph Latipo. Uh, to talk about um, perceived vaccine injuries and wanting to hold a vaccine manufacturers accountable. It's unclear what will come of that. Um, I don't know how he would actually do that, but I, I do know that he's holding those talks now. Talking about 
healthcare in Florida, the big stories from 2022 and what to expect in 2023. Let's welcome Daniel, David Chang, rather, into the conversation. Um, Daniel Chang into the conversation, Florida health correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Uh, Daniel, school vaccinations for kindergartners and seventh graders have fallen to a 10-year low. What are the implications of this for diseases like tetanus, measles, mumps, rubella, hepatitis B, polio? And what, if anything, are state and county health departments doing to help encourage these vaccinations? Well, I, I think that one of the big the, the biggest concern with vaccine preventable diseases is that when we stop vaccinating uh, children, especially that we'll have outbreaks of these diseases. Uh, uh, you know, in terms of what um, what the counties, uh, the county health departments in the state are doing, um, you know, they, they're in a tricky position because the state's uh, uh, elected officials and our Surgeon General are very much against vaccinating healthy young children against COVID. Mm -hmm. uh, and unfortunately, that message resonates to other vaccination efforts. I've spoken to pediatricians and the Florida chapter of the American Academy of Pediatricians uh, who are concerned that this uh, anti-vaccine sentiment is spreading to other uh, vaccines that were uh, long accepted and that are required to enter school. But if you look at the, the rate of religious exemptions uh, for childhood vaccinations required to enter into schools in Florida, they're rising. Uh, they're in some counties are as high as almost 10%. So I think, again, the big concern and, and the first sign we'll see of a repercussion of this are, are outbreaks of diseases that would have been preventable if, if uh, children were vaccinated, whether that's measles or mumps or something else. And what you're seeing then, Daniel, are you saying that the, those exemptions are potentially um, the reason for, for the, the slowdown and vaccination rate amongst those those kids? I don't think they're the reason. I think they're evidence of a, a growing uh, anti-vaccine sentiment, perhaps, uh, you know, as, as the number of religious exemptions for children who are enrolled in our public schools uh, 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 increases. Uh, so does the likelihood that we could have outbreaks. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you about uh, fentanyl overdoses. Doctors across the state of Florida say fentanyl overdoses are rising. What do we know about why those overdoses are going up? Well, in terms of why those overdoses are going up, I think there's the accessibility of them. Uh, I think that there have also been failures in terms of our preventing them entering the country uh, from other places. Um, and, you know, there's still, I think, a lot of um, a lot of fallout from from mental health and the lack of, of adequate mental health services uh, in the state. Uh, you know, the, the Florida has, uh, has has instituted a new program uh, that's called Core Network. And what it is, is a sort of multi-agency uh, consortium. Uh, and, and it also includes uh, local law enforcement and first responders. Uh, but the idea is to target the counties where we have the highest numbers of fatal overdoses. I believe there have been more than 4,000 so far this year in Florida. Mm -hmm. In the counties, the counties that have been, it was piloted, uh, this program in Palm Beach County, and uh, it's it, most of the counties where they've, uh, the, the Department of Health and the Department of Children and Families and Agency for Healthcare Administration, which are the three state agencies leading this consortium, uh, where they've, they've instituted this program are mostly in the central and the north. There's a couple on the panhandle, too. And, uh, you know, the, the purpose here is to, as uh, the, the, the Surgeon General and others have said, is to, is to treat more than just the overdose episode. They want to address the underlying causes of addiction and to provide sustainable care, such as a, a primary care physician and mental health support. Uh, you know, the irony here is that they have a way to do that already. It's called Medicaid expansion. Uh, but I believe we're we're trying a different route here, and um, I, I think that's one of the things that we'll be wanting to to examine in 2023 is the effectiveness of the the success or the impact of the core network program. Mm -hmm. And what about who's most affected? Like, are you seeing some trends in terms of people who are showing up in the data as overdoses or people that the uh, doctors are trying to target for help? 
you know, unfortunately, I haven't looked at the data that closely, so I, I don't know what the trends are in terms of, of who's being affected the most. I could speak to that a bit. Sure. Carrie. Yeah, the people who are um, being affected by this most, um, ER doctors are really seeing a trend, um, a demographic shift to people of color are increasingly overdosing. Um, whereas during, you know, about a decade ago, the opioid and heroin epidemic was largely among white people in rural areas. It's increasingly um, affecting people of color. And Florida has seen an exponential rise in deaths due to fentanyl, according to the State Department of Health. And they had issued a public health alert in July. But some of the doctors I've spoken to say, you know, some harm reduction measures uh, like having fentanyl test strips available for people um, mm -hmm. so that they can test the drugs that they're using to see if they contain fentanyl would be helpful um, because we are seeing a lot of um manufactured versions, counterfeit versions of Adderall, Xanax, and other prescription pills that people are taking, but they're not aware that they contain fentanyl. And fentanyl can be very deadly. So that's really driving the overdoses. Mm -hmm. I want to ask about gender-affirming care. This is another story that's gotten a lot of headlines. It ties in a lot with the state's politics. Um, two panels of doctors voted to ban gender-affirming care for Floridians over, under the age of 18. Uh, Daniel, what does this mean for transgender youth and what impacts are you seeing in the community? Well, what this means for transgender youth is that they're not going to be able to access uh, either uh, uh, sort of drug interventions or potentially surgery uh, in their gender-affirming care. Uh, you know what? What, what the, the 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 Medicaid panel did, and what the Florida Board of Medicine did, was essentially to uh, to to prohibit uh, the gender affirming care for for minors. Uh, pretty much everything except uh, counseling, psychological counseling, uh, that that type of thing. I think what it means for families uh, of, of of children who have gender dysphoria is that they're going to have to go out of state to seek their care. And, uh, you know, whether that is to to be prescribed hormones or perhaps to undergo surgery, although most minors who, who are receiving gender affirming care do not receive surgery, according to the doctors that we've spoken to. Uh, but what it does mean is that by having to go out of state, you need to have the resources to do that. Uh, and then after that, you need to have the resources to have uh, continuous and proper follow up care. Uh, so I think it's going to exclude a lot of people who don't have the ability to to seek this care out of state uh, and potentially travel to California or New York or a state where there aren't either administrative rules or laws that prohibit uh, uh, providing uh, transgender care to, to minors. Yeah, I, the other thing that that the the uh, the Florida Board of Medicine and and uh, the, the the Medicaid panel did is that they they they've made it more difficult for adults who are receiving uh, mm -hmm. hormone treatment to continue receiving them. They have to sign these lengthy uh, disclosure forms, consent mm -hmm. forms, and and they have to wait a couple of days too if they haven't already. If they're not already under uh, receiving this care, they'll have to wait. Right. And and I should say that's also an important caveat that anybody who is currently receiving care is not supposed to be affected by this. So. We've been speaking with uh, Daniel Chang, um, Florida correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thanks, Daniel. Also, thank you to WSF Health and Education reporter Kerry Sheridan. Thank you. Thank you. Partisan politics defines some big stories in education this year. Up next, how will issues like parental rights and book bans factor next year? That's next here on the Florida Roundup.
Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. Thanks for listening. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, schools are always in the crossfire of politics, but this year Florida saw that taken to new levels. Students returned to in-person classes in January without masks as they were banned in schools last November. Yeah, I remember that. And meanwhile, HB 1557, the Parental Rights and Education Act, what critics called the Don't Say Gay Law, was enacted into law in this year's legislative session. Now, supporters say the measure gives parents the right to make decisions about the upbringing of their children and what they learn in class. However, opponents say the law stifles what kids are learning in the classroom and burdens free speech rights of LGBTQ parents and students. Schools across the state saw more involvement from the government in school board elections. Governor DeSantis backed 30 candidates and 24 of them won their races. Now, these races are typically nonpartisan, but this time they saw plenty of support from Republicans and groups like Moms for Liberty, who endorsed 12 candidates. It's safe to say that education was a big issue for voters this year and politicians. The parental rights piece was key for conservatives and the governor. So we're wondering, will these issues continue to play a major role in our Florida political life in 2023? Here to talk about education in the Sunshine State, we welcome Jeff Solacek, education reporter for the Tampa Bay Times. Hey, Jeff. Hello. How's it going? Really well, thanks. Good to have you. No phone calls today on the show, folks. Yeah, no phone calls today on the show, but lots of great discussion. So, Jeff, this year's school board races gave the governor victories around the state as most of his hand-picked candidates won seats. And we've already seen some of them take action. In fact, some superintendents have been fired. Uh, Will we see more changes in 2023 from these newly constituted school boards? It looks like they're just getting started, really. I I talked to some of the people in Brevard and Sarasota, which is where the two counties that have fired their superintendents or are in the process of firing their superintendents. And they have what they feel like is their new clarion call. They have their directions and they have a new thing that they want to accomplish, something that their liberal former members didn't want to do, is what they say. And so I think that we're going to see that happen there and we're other counties as well. I think Miami-Dade is one where we're seeing more conservative-leaning members as well. And Pinellas County got two out of their seven now are strong Moms for Liberty supporters. It's it's just the start, it looks like. But let's talk about some of these counties. Uh, you mentioned Sarasota and Brevard. After the newly elected Sarasota School Board voted to negotiate their superintendent's resignation, uh, that outgoing school chief, Brennan Asplund, talked about politics and nonsense, taking his time away from instructional issues. Why was he ousted? And what does this mean as we see these school boards, which were previously always viewed as nonpartisan bodies? What does this mean that they've been so politicized? Well, to the first question, why was he ousted? That's not entirely clear. He did get some very strong evaluations from some members of his board, and the school district is generally considered to be a good school district. But politics did play a huge role, and with a new four-member majority led by the one of the founders of Moms for Liberty, they had new directions that they wanted to go, and and that's what they're appearing to do. And so, politics is starting to play a role. And some would argue that it all already had been playing a role. It's just much more prominent than in the past. Joe Gruder is the state senator who pushed for, at one point, having partisan elections for school board members, said point blank, look, the Republicans and Democrats are already pushing their candidates. They're supporting them in every way. The only thing we're doing is calling them nonpartisan. So why put up that fig leaf? Why not just say what it is? These are party races just without the party names affiliated with them right now. Mm. And how how will the politics that have uh, seeped into board governance, what are educators saying about this? Are they concerned this will affect in any way the quality of instruction in classrooms? Well, it kind of depends on who, who you ask. I mean, there are some people who are just as equally political and they'll they like it. There are others who say, it's always been political and they've had to navigate it and they'll continue to navigate it. 
It's just that it's become hard for a lot of teachers to try and know where the lines are. And we've seen this with, as you referred to the bill on the parental rights or the don't say gay, whatever we're calling it now. And we've seen it with the book, the question of books and book challenges and what books belong in the classrooms and on the library shelves, because they don't know quite what the definitions are in some of these very vague statutes that were written some will say to confuse the issues and make it so that people are afraid to say things that they might have otherwise said in the past. Mm. Meantime, the State Board of Education has vowed to tackle what it calls woke policies in Florida school districts that have, in their view, violated new state law. How can we expect enforcement of the law to play out next year? It looks like the state board is is just really spreading out its wings and and getting more and more insistent that these things happen. And as we saw with masks, I think we're going to see again the state board identifying school districts that they think aren't doing the things that are written in state law as they interpret it and then setting forth ways that they can punish them, whether it might be withholding funds or calling them to the table and threatening them with Whatever sort of action it might be, maybe they'll turn to the governor and say, Governor, we don't believe that the state school, these school board members are following the, the law. And that might be a reason to remove a school board member, or some might think that it's possible to do it as they did with the state, with the attorney, state's attorney, Andrew Warren, in Hillsborough County. And yeah, then- yeah, yeah. Yeah. Does that set a precedent of more uh, duly elected officials being? yanked out of office, not by the voters, but by uh, by other means? It's a good question because we saw in Broward County where they had that uh, long-standing grand jury looking into whether schools were following the law regarding school safety. At the end of the day, they removed four Broward County school board members, placed four new ones in that the governor selected in addition to another who he had chosen for a retiring member who went into the state Senate. Suddenly you have a brand new unelected majority who turned around and fired the superintendent. Talking about education in the Sunshine State with Tampa Bay Times education reporter Jeff Solacek. Uh, Jeff, you mentioned the notion of book bans. Of course, proponents of restricting library materials or books and classrooms are point out they they say they are not book bans they're quite adamant about that but opponents say yes books are being banned um this year at least 102 books have been removed from the shelves of school libraries in clay county florida and you have groups like no left turn in education challenging library material and under these new laws books have to meet certain criteria to be in classrooms and libraries i want to see how you see this playing out in 2023 are you anticipating more books are going to be banned across the state next year, or are you thinking we might see more books being challenged? I do think that there will be a lot of books being challenged, especially when you have these newly empowered school boards that we were talking about earlier. I was talking with some of the people from the Freedom to Read Project who are fighting against that effort. And they they strongly believe that, especially as the state puts forward its new guidelines for training librarians on how to pick materials, that it's just the start of a process that they're trying to, they're fighting against it, but they feel like, you know, nobody's even hiding the fact that they're trying to get books changed, removed, put behind a shelf, judged by keywords as opposed to their full content in context. And they're very concerned about it. And They don't see it slowing down, but they're trying to slow it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we saw some interesting responses from educators uh, as this new law rolled out and as they came back to for the new school year in 2022. I think one um, school teacher had caution tape across uh, their library shelf. Uh, Librarians were talking about their concerns uh, with books on the shelves. What, What is the general sentiment amongst educators that you talk to about the impact of these so-called book bans on on the learning and you know what they can and can't teach their kids well there are, there's two aspects to it as far as being access to books in libraries a lot of people are saying that they feel that this is an effort to sort of 
slow down the way that kids love to read. If they can't find the books that they want on the shelves because they've been banned for this reason or that reason or removed or put behind a shelf where they have to get their parents' permission to get them. And in the classroom, again, it's the teachers who are concerned that if they put a certain piece of material in a child's hand, who's going to come and criticize them? And are they going to be held to some sort of standard from the state board or someplace else that they violated a law somewhere? And so mm -hmm. there's a lot of trepidation as far as what can we and can we not do? And so a lot of people are pre-censoring themselves, making it so mm -hmm. that the state doesn't even have to do anything because they just don't want to get to the point where they are challenged with their certification, lose their livelihoods over something like a book in a classroom. And what about groups like Freedom to Read? Uh, we are hearing more about them, uh, you know, as a response to these book bans. Like, are they thinking about legal action or is it more just trying to support librarians and teachers and give them the freedom to teach what they feel is appropriate? Well, I know some of them were up in Washington, D.C. not so long ago talking to some lawyers who aren't directly connected to the Florida political scene. So we'll have to see where that leads. But they're definitely concerned because they believe that this is a First Amendment violation for students and that it's been written in plenty of Supreme Court rulings and about library books as opposed to books that are like an assignment. And so I think there's going to be a fight there. We spoke um, earlier in the show uh, about the health care situation in Florida and vaccination rates kind of dipping to some unprecedented lows amongst uh, elementary school children. With regards to COVID, Jeff, um, what are you hearing about, you know, th the impact that COVID may have on schools going forward? We are still in a pandemic, despite the fact that most restrictions have been lifted, but what sort of, um, what do you think COVID is going to, uh, how is it going to influence the way education happens in Florida in 2023? I don't think it's going to influence much anymore. Schools really aren't talking about it as much as you might want them to, or some people might want them to. There are still the handful of parents who will come forward and say, why aren't you doing this or that? Masks, bans, uh, um, quarantines, all that kind of stuff. But it's really just become a non-issue as far as the schools are concerned. They're just operating and saying, come if you're feeling well and don't come if you're sick. Mm -hmm. Now, schools started the year facing a teacher shortage. Have they been able to fill vacant teaching positions? They filled some, but there are still plenty out there. I, I just recently looked at the numbers for the schools in the Tampa Bay area, and we found that the numbers of vacancies are rather similar to the numbers from August. They may not be the same exact people, but the numbers are still bad. People might leave and then the trouble is trying to find somebody to replace them. There are mm. problems finding substitutes. There are problems finding also bus drivers and a whole bunch of other positions within the schools. And when you talk to kids and the teachers who are still in the schools, having to deal with those vacancies and, and the the situation that it creates, it's it's creating struggles, struggles to teach the kids well and to meet the standards that they're expected to meet because they're so busy sometimes just doing a patch job, making sure kids have somebody in the room watching over them just to make sure they're behaving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the bus driver shortage, that, that creates a bit of a knock-on effect, right, because it affects kind of school starting times. I know that some school districts were trying to offer some kind of incentive for bus drivers have, have those campaigns been successful have they been able to um, recruit some more folks to kind of keep the buses running well the buses are running but they're not necessarily running on time you still hear from a lot of parents who are saying that you know my kid never gets the first period on time and and so what are they going to do about that they're either going to fail this academic course or they're going to try to reschedule them so that they're doing PE first period. So that way they, it doesn't matter if you miss PE so much, I guess, because it's not really a, an academic grade, things like that. And then buses coming home too. So they're working on different aspects, but no, the bus drivers positions aren't getting filled really well either. There's still large percentages that are not getting to school on time or getting home. Mm -hmm. And I mean, teacher shortages, it's not a new story, right? I wonder in your reporting over the course of the year so far, Jeff, and thinking about what's to come in 2023, 
what's different about this teacher shortage? Is it just the fact that there are more vacancies and they're taking longer to fill? Uh, do you have a sense that veteran teachers are getting burnt out? Like what, what's going on? That's a hard question to answer because I think each teacher has their own individual reason why they want to stay or go. But it seems like I'm hearing from a lot more people who are saying they're just fed up with the disrespect that teachers get from the state level on down. They don't feel like they're paid well enough to reflect the professional job that they are trying to do and taking care of their um, your kids, our kids, at the same time that the state tells them, we respect you and here's a bonus. They don't hear, we respect you and here's a bonus. They hear, don't say this and don't teach that. And by the way, you are indoctrinating our children and you're evil. And so there's a lot of just feeling of being berated a lot. And, mm -hmm. and it's not a pleasant position to be in. They love their kids, but they're also talking about some people who thought they might never quit are talking about quitting. Right, which is not good news for school districts, right? They're they're looking to kind of keep their veteran teachers and make sure they don't lose more by way of attrition while still trying to recruit younger teachers. So that's a that's a challenge for any kind of school district of any size. Absolutely, especially when they're all working hard with their communities, passing special taxes to raise pay because they can't get enough from the state to do what they want to do to be competitive and so they're they're trying but sometimes it seems like they're running in place and not accomplishing what they want to accomplish and are teachers being vocal about the obstacles they're facing obviously they're talking to you but what about sort of in more public forums oh they certainly go to their school board meetings and make it known i know that the hillsborough county teachers union has basically come up with this plan to go in and bring as many teachers as can fit during a period of time and tell their stories about what's going on in their schools and making it clear that, you know, there needs to be improvements. And school board members are hearing it. I spoke to one Pinellas County school board member not too long ago who said, we need to do our best to make sure that teachers understand that they are respected and we do value them, even if things aren't actually seeming that way to them all the time. So lots of uh, challenges ahead. Uh, we've been speaking with education reporter for the Tampa Bay Times, Jeff Solacek, about 2022 and what to expect in 2023. Jeff, thanks so much for your reporting and your time. Thanks for asking. And up next, this year's primaries brought major wins for the Republican Party in Florida. What does that mean for the future political landscape? That's next here on Florida Roundup from Florida Public Radio. Welcome back to the Florida Roundup. I'm Melissa Ross in Jacksonville. And I'm Matthew Petty in Tampa. Well, Republicans in the state have solidified their grip on power with a strong showing in the midterm elections, riding on the coattails of Governor Ron DeSantis's comprehensive re-election win. They secured a supermajority in the state legislature and sent more Republican lawmakers to Washington. 
Yeah, DeSantis saw little pushback from Republicans on redistricting and other policies he championed in the last legislative session. The governor signed controversial bills around education and other hot-button issues into law, and he grabbed headlines by controversially flying migrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. And he used his new election fraud task force to target certain voters. Despite loud protests from Democratic lawmakers and other opponents, DeSantis's polarizing tactics didn't appear to cost him at the ballot box. So what can we expect from an even more lopsided legislature in the coming year? Will the governor's campaign against what he calls woke ideology continue to define the policies that shape laws in the Sunshine State? And how does the Democratic Party regroup in what appears is no longer a swing state? And what influence will national politics continue to have on Florida? Well, for more, we're joined by Mary Ellen Klaas, State Capitol Bureau Chief for the Miami Herald. Thanks for being here, Mary. Good to be here. And A.G. Gankarski of Florida Politics. A.G., good to have you as well. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, Mary Ellen, let me start with you. Uh, Representative Joe Harding, sponsor of House Bill 1557, uh, resigned after being indicted on federal fraud charges related to COVID-19 relief funds. What do you think his resignation, how will that resignation affect the House and the overall legislature? Well, because the House has an 85-35 majority over um, Democrats, losing one Republican uh, is really going to have almost no effect. Um, Joe Harding was somebody that was somewhat close to leadership but wasn't in the inner circle. Um, And they will now conduct a special uh, legislative election, and I'm sure another Republican will replace him. But it's really going to have a minimal impact. Mm -hmm. What about the the law itself, though? I mean, that was a controversial piece of legislation. Opponents labeled it uh, don't say gay. And I think some folks who are opposed to that are kind of seeing, well, uh, feeling a little sense of... um, I don't know, maybe some relief perhaps at his his resignation. Uh, what do you make of the kind of bigger picture there? I think he was really just carrying the water for the for the um, the proponents of this legislation. I think that we'll continue to see this um, piece of legislation likely be expanded into higher grades. Um, and uh, and there will continue to be some friction from the school districts who now say that they are being told that they that their speech and their policies are being restricted because of this. Um, I think tensions are going to continue on this issue. And um, I think Joe Harding's departure isn't really going to matter that much. And when you say friction, uh, what about things like lawsuits, legal challenges? What do you what do you foresee in the way of um, maybe attempts to push back at this law? Yeah, I believe there are some, there are already is a pending um, legal challenge and um, that's going to, you know, wind its way slowly through the courts. I think um, the, as with a lot of these culture war issues, it's not really the fine print that is as important as the headlines and Mm -hmm. the idea that the national media attention has now focused on Ron DeSantis and his agenda in Florida. And as these things get perhaps um, modified by courts, weakened, um, in some cases even um, put on hold, um, I think you'll find that oftentimes the national media just doesn't follow up on that stuff. And so the headlines get a lot of traction and the Mm. nuance does not. Right. Well, that's where the the, um, state and local media like the Miami Herald comes in, right, Uh, Mary Ellen? So let me ask more about the Republican supermajority in Florida's House and Senate then. Uh, One of the pieces of legislation, we're seeing this in Florida and, of course, across the United States after Roe v. Wade's uh, overturning by the Supreme Court. Will we see abortion return for lawmakers next year, possibly during this upcoming legislative session? You know, I'm really curious about how this is going to play out. I think it's going to be one of the most interesting issues. There is um, an enormous push um, on the right for the legislature to use its supermajority powers to really push through additional limits um, and matching what what some of our neighboring states do, which is um, 
limit abortion to six weeks um, and the fetal heartbeat legislation. There is also an interesting dynamic at play here, and that is that there is a lot of legislators who are a little reluctant to go that far, and mm-hmm. they're all Republicans. And um, so, on the and and I think that is even something that that the DeSantis administration is is trying to navigate. They know that their their base wants them to go farther, but they also know that there is a giant middle that is much more moderate in the state state, and there is a, a majority of people who don't want Florida to go any stricter. So um, whether they appease the base or not is a big question. Um, you know, we've we've heard initially from Senate President Pasadomo that she's interested in maybe going to 12 weeks, but she mm-hmm. wants to see an exception for the life of the mother and rape. That is not allowed in current law at the 15-week ban. Um, we've also heard from uh, House Speaker Renner that he, he believes maybe they could go farther. They could go to six weeks. So I think this is going to be um, an interest. I don't think it's going to be uh, easy thing for them to get through. I think mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to watch. And they're also interested in waiting for the, the Florida Supreme Court and what it does. Let's go now to A.G. Gankarski of Florida Politics. You know, A.G., in the November midterms, Democrats really beat expectations all over the country, not here in Florida, where they suffered harsh losses. What's next for Florida's ailing Democratic Party? That's a great question. Um Usually, after every two years, they um, have a reckoning. You have a new chair come in. I, I think they're going to have to consider that yet again, uh, chair replacement. Um, so watch that. But, you know, the issues are resources. The issues are, you know, the fact that they can't really raise money to compete. Um, if you look at the governor's race, for example, the Santa's way out raised Christ. Um, all of the cabinet races, the same dynamic play. And, of course, Republicans control the redistricting. That's how you have these legislative supermajorities. So when you add all that together, uh, Democrats are, they aren't just playing defense, they're playing rebuilding. And, you know, it's going to take decades really to do that, given, you know, given the um, realities of registration in the state, the realities of Republican momentum in the state, and the fact that Ron DeSantis um, hasn't made real mistakes um, in terms of the perception of the majority of the voters. I mean, his reelection spoke to that. And so right now it's Ron DeSantis world and Florida Democrats are living in it. Mm. Now, speaking of the governor, it's widely expected he plans to run for president in 2024. Uh, but what does that mean for Florida in 2023, particularly since another Florida man, Donald Trump, has already announced? Well, we, we've seen DeSantis. Um, he He's really keeping his eye on the ball, at least in public. Um, He's focusing on legislation, focusing on policy. Um, He's not talking about running for president. He's saying the questions are um, premature or, you know, blaming media for asking them or saying it's a media controversy. So, you know, he's going to hold his fire in terms of talking 2024 through this regular session that's coming next year. But what happens after that? I think you may see an exploratory committee. I think you may see the the ramp up to a presidential campaign. Um, it just it feels like Donald Trump's time is almost over. Uh, Ron DeSantis is ascendant, and he's winning a lot of state polls head to head against DeSantis against Trump. But the problem is also that you're going to see a crowded field. It's not just be Trump and DeSantis. There's going to be uh, however many other candidates, like in 2012 for Republicans. So. Um, if it's everybody against Trump, even if Trump's diminished, you might want to bet on Trump. But we'll see how it plays out. There's a lot there's a lot to go before we know what happens. That's right. Now, of course, uh, earlier in the year, the governor uh, campaigned against Disney. Lawmakers this year voted to dissolve their special taxing district in central Florida after the former CEO spoke out against the parental rights and education bill. That's being walked back, though. How, how do you see that playing out next year? Well, it's kind of being walked back. Um, the governor's office says they're they're not really walking it back, but um, it, it I wouldn't be surprised by a serious push in the in the legislature to do that anyway and find a way to have the Senate declare victory somehow else. Um, 
it, it feels like the work of untangling the Reedy Creek district is, uh, you know, really more than the legislature wants to handle. And that's what they're charged with doing with this session if they don't change course. Before we say goodbye, anything else on your radar for next year, either one of you? Well, one of the uh, things I, go I'll, ahead. Just, I'll just throw in the fact that with a supermajority, there is something really important in Florida, and that is our public records law. And um, with a supermajority super in both the House and Senate, um, faced with a, a governor's administration that is probably the least transparent and um, of any we've seen in decades, I think one thing to keep an eye on is whether they try to um, weaken the public records laws because they need all they need is a two thirds majority to do that. And I think that. the governor well, may want that to is see so something. important. Uh, we'll have to explore that more in, in the new year <laughs> because that's an important one. And uh, not to cut you off, but we are out of time. And I want to thank you both at the end of this year. Mary Ellen Kloss of the Miami Herald, A.G. Gankarski, Florida Politics. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And that's our show, the Florida Roundup, produced by WJCT Public Media in Jacksonville and WLRN Public Media in Miami. Heather Schatz and Natu Tuway are the show producers. WLRN's Vice President of Radio and our Technical Director is Peter Mance. Engineering help from Doug Peterson, Charles Michaels and Josh Torres. Richard Ives answers the phones. Our theme music by Miami jazz guitarist Aaron Lebos at AaronLebos.com. I'm Matthew Petty. And I'm Melissa Ross. Thanks for calling and listening and best wishes for the new year.